Our epistle reading is from Hebrews 11, 1 through 7, and that can be found on page 1195 in your pew Bible. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. doing all the reading today just because I'm preaching so (laughs) it's good to be with you this morning let's pray Jesus I thank you so much for this word thank you for the letter to the Hebrews thank you for scripture in general from which we learn so much it's the way you grow us it's the way you speak to us As the writer to the Hebrews said, God spoke through his son. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Thank you. Just thank you for all you've done for us. Bless this time. Bless the preaching of your word. Shape our hearts. Direct our eyes toward you, Lord, and revive our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, so we're into... Hebrews 11, and uh, you know I want to commend Sam for a great intro into this into this uh, chapter last week. It was really great sermon, Sam. So thank you. Um, just appreciate you introducing us to the faith and really helping us understand the faith that this author was talking about. As we get into this passage, it's good to remember that the previous all these you know back when this was written, it wasn't divided up into chapters and verses. 
Um, you know, those chapters and verses came later to help us with reference and, and to kind of locate things. But this was written as a letter, like you or I would write a letter. We wouldn't put chapters and verses in there. So when we're thinking about this, we're realizing that, that chapter 10 rolls right into chapter 11. And the things that are said in chapter 10 are significant to what is said next in chapter 11. And back in chapter 10, the author, after speaking on the priestly, this one-time sacrifice, this better sacrifice. Remember, he talked about the old covenant and its many sacrifices and the better sacrifice of Christ. This one-time sacrifice of our great high priest. He says that they were all obsolete. And after that, after he convinces them, or he's hoping to convince them, that Christ's sacrifice is the one we need to be focusing on the one with whom we need to put our faith. He says this in, in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He's calling them to have this full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then he reminds them again, we talked about this in the past, but it's good to be, re to be reminded of this, reminding them of, of, of how they handled these things in the past, how they handled their persecutions in the past, that you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a more abiding and better possession. And he says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hang in there and you're going to get what is promised, is what he's saying. You need the endurance, though. And all this talk of, of, of endurance reminds me, well, especially, you know, Abram mentioned this also. And it's in the children's liturgy. This, this, this race language, this um, athletic race and, and games and competition language that's used by the writer of the Hebrews and also the Apostle Paul, as Abram said. And when, as I was thinking about this, it made me think about this runner that I couldn't remember who it was, but I, I had to look it up. His name is Derek Redman. Derek Redman was a British runner who was favored to be a medalist, at the very least, in the 92 Olympics held in Barcelona. And you might have seen this video, but Derek Redman was running hard. He was, I think it was the 1,000 meter, I'm not sure. But as he was running, he's rounding the curve to come into the finish line. He's probably a few hundred, maybe 100 yards out, I don't know. And all of a sudden, he grabs the back of his right leg and drops to the ground. He pulled a hamstring. In fact, he ruined his hamstring, it said. And you could see him on the ground in, in great pain, and then he gets up. He gets up and he starts hobbling toward the finish line. And if you watch this video, it's very emotional because then what happens as he's struggling, just struggling to make it to the finish line, this guy comes running onto the track and they're trying to hold him back and then they let him go. Here it's, it's, it's Derek's dad. And Derek's dad comes along, Derek, and grabs him and holds him and is walking him to the finish line because he wanted him to finish. And he's holding on, and you could see the intense pain in Derek's face. And as soon as they cross the finish line, you just see the weeping and the pain, and he just drops. His father brought him across the line. Another incident that I, I couldn't help, I didn't want to overlook 
was in 2016, these two British, British again, very nice people, the British. Um, 2016, the Brownlee brothers, they were in this triathlon in Cozumel, Mexico. It was a very hot day. And these both, uh, well, Johnny, Johnny uh, uh, Brownlee was, was favored to win this triathlon. And as he's running, he's probably a thousand yards out. His brother Alistair was behind him uh, a, little, a little further back. But probably a thousand yards out, Johnny's running, and you see Johnny starting to wobble. His, his legs are starting to give out. He's starting to get confused. He's starting to kind of go in different directions. And what's happening is he's being overcome by heat exhaustion. And so you're seeing him. You're, you're like, is he even going to make it? And he's just, he's, he looks terrible. And soon, he was in first place, and soon guys are starting to pass him. And then his brother, Alistair, comes up, who was also going to place in this race, and Alistair gets Johnny and brings him across, holds on to him. The guy is about to die, really, and, and he's, he's taking him. In fact, as soon as he gets him to the finish line, he just pushes him. He pushes him over, and, and Johnny falls over, but he finished Those are very emotional scenes, very inspiring. And when you see something like that, you think, you realize how this applies to the gospel, how it applies to our walk with Christ. And like athletes, we followers of Jesus, we can succumb to the exhaustion in our faith. One article I read stating reasons why people stop believing in God you know, if you, you see these articles, sometimes it says, I stopped believing in God because of this. Or I see there, there was like 20 reasons of, of, as to why people, due to a survey, from a survey, why people stopped believing in God, why they left their faith. Mostly due to pain caused by other people. Mostly caused by pain from other people or by seeing somebody die, seeing somebody go through suffering. Or the pains of abuse, sometimes coming from church leaders or those in authority. It was all too much. It's all they could handle, and they gave up. They stopped believing, and they left their faith. Well, sometimes we've been hurt from suffering. Sometimes we've been hurt from other people. And sometimes we've been exhausted, by our, we've been exhausted in our faith. We're bombarded with arguments, situations, and relationships that constantly, sometimes constantly, seem to be testing our faith. And unless someone comes alongside us, unless somebody picks us up and pulls us across that finish line, we too might not want to get back up. That's where these Hebrews were. A lot of them were feeling done. Like, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. I can't go through another persecution. Yes, I handled that last persecution. We had a strong faith. We were together. We were worshiping together. But I can't do this again. Some of us feel like that. Some of us are dealing with that. And we, too... In grace and peace fellowship here, we too need the endurance in our faith. This is a faith that the writer assured the people, as, as, as Sam uh, preached last week, that they already have this, they already possess this. He said this back in 1039, he said, but we are not of those who draw back, 
but we are those who are of faith. And now the writer is is providing, in this chapter here, he's providing a demonstration of the benefits of that faith that they own. This better and abiding possession that the Hebrews have that he talked about, that they once believed, that they once held on to, that was the focus of their attention, is now beginning to lose its clarity. It's starting to come out of focus. They're starting to wobble. They're starting to hurt. He used this chapter in chapter 11 to provide better clarity, to help them refocus their eyes, to come alongside them, and to show the ones who are coming alongside them, who have been with them all along in order that they too may cross the finish line. And may he do that for us. May this text do this for us this morning. So how does he provide endurance in this chapter? How does he provide this this deepening of our faith in this chapter? He shows us how faith actively works in us. And he he gives three examples of this. He, he, He shows us the performance of faith in Abel, He shows us the practice of faith in Enoch, and he shows us the perseverance of faith in Noah. So he shows us the the performance of faith in Abel. This is uh, starting in verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable or a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's interesting, he says, though he died, he still speaks, huh? The point is that Abel's sacrifice was better. Do you ever think that this might be a little bit unfair? The Cain and Abel were bringing their sacrifices to God. The Cain was tending the ground. He gave his sacrifice, and, and Abel brought his, and God accepted Abel's and didn't accept Cain's. Does that seem a little unfair? Might. It might. But this wasn't because he didn't accept. So, you know, I, I've, I've read articles and seen where, where preachers will talk about why God accepted Cain's or why he accepted Abel's sacrifice and some of these things may be true like it was the it it was it was a a living creature that he sacrificed to God it was the firstborn of his flock that all may be true but the problem is we can get caught up in the type of offering that was offered by Abel why it was so accepted by God we can get really caught up in these things because we can tend to be a little bit performance driven perhaps We could think that that Abel obviously had something better to offer to God, and that's what pleased God, was what Abel offered to him. But this might give us a little bit of a hint as to what's going on here. Proverbs 15.8 says this, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the faithful or the upright is acceptable to him. You see, it's a heart of faith. It's the heart that was bringing that offering that was so important is what is being pointed out here by the writer. Martin Luther, I read, I read his introduction, a little bit from his introduction to Galatians a few weeks ago. Today, this is coming out of Martin Luther's introduction to Romans. Listen to what he says. Luther says, faith is not what some people think it is. 
Their human dream is a delusion. Faith is not enough, they say. You must do good works. You must be pious or righteous to be saved. That's why they think true faith, that's what they think true faith is. But because this is a human idea, a dream, the heart never learns anything from it. So it does nothing, and reform doesn't come from this faith either. Instead, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives new birth from God. Why is Abel introduced here? Is it because he gave his best? No, but it was by faith that he was commended as righteous. That word commended could be, it was testified by God. He was witnessed by God. God gave witness that Abel was righteous because of the faithful heart that brought the offering. Now, it could be that the faith of Abel trusted that God was the one who created everything that he was tending, all of his flock. And because of that, he trusted God with the firstborn, that this precious lamb that was just firstborn and was going to maybe provide more for him. And he was able to, because of his faith, Abel offered that to the Lord. So in that sense, I could see what Abel offered was acceptable. But the point is, it was the heart of Abel that God was commending. It was a heart of faith. And don't miss this, that Abel's righteousness came from his faith. And notice, remember when, when we said back in, in uh, as we started going through the book of Hebrews, how you see the word better all throughout the book of Hebrews. He's introducing a better prophet in the very beginning. In the past, he spoke through the prophets. Now he speaks through his son. The old covenant was obsolete. Now he brings in a new covenant that's a better covenant. The old offerings are obsolete. Now Christ is a better offering, a better sacrifice. And he's saying that Abel brought a better sacrifice because it was a sacrifice offered in faith. It's the thing that the author has been telling the Hebrews throughout this time. Believe in the offering of Christ. Put your faith in the offering of Christ because that is what you need. You don't go back to the old ways because there's nothing there anymore. It's obsolete. Look at Abel. All the way back then, here's Abel with a faithful heart, believing that God brought him, provided everything for him, and will continue to do so. Abel offered what was precious to him to God, and God accepted it. And God accepted it because Abel believed, and it was considered to him as righteousness. And then the author says, Abel still speaks. Now, what Christy read in, in Genesis, we hear Abel's blood crying out. God says to, to Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. That's more of a cry for justice. That, that Abel's righteous blood is crying out to the Lord for justice to be done. But here we don't see that the writer of Hebrews is saying that Abel still cries out or that his blood cries out, we see that he speaks. What exactly is he speaking? He's saying his blood is testifying that he still lives because he died righteously, trusting his God. 
because he trusts in something that God provided and the culture rejects. Well, we're going to see in these two, in these two examples with, with actually all three examples, we're going to see that these, uh, that, that these patriarchs or these uh, brothers in the faith were ones who had faith in the midst of cultural rejection. Think about what the Hebrews are going through right now. They're about to be persecuted. What they are believing is not accepted by the culture. And another proverb in 29, Proverbs 29 says, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. In the midst of, in the midst of bloodthirsty men, Abel stayed faithful to the Lord. Abel persevered in his faith. Next verse five, we see, by faith, Enoch. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, if you read the, the, the account in Genesis 5, it says that Enoch walked with God. But the writer to the Hebrews is using the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll see in your Bibles LXX, that's uh, Roman numerals for 70, meaning there were, I think, 70 rabbis who were translating this to Greek, from Hebrew to Greek. So the translation in the Septuagint says that he was commended as having pleased God. But they really coexist. They really work together, walking with God and pleasing God. He was trusting in God. Something interesting about Enoch here, you know, you don't hear much about him. There's just very little written about him in the Bible. But he was, he was a pretty significant figure in some Jewish circles. In, in the circle of what's called the Essenes, uh, you heard the Dead Sea Scrolls, there, there, was, there was a book of, two books of Enoch. I think there was one uh, complete, pretty complete book of Enoch that had all these writings. So Enoch was revered by, by some of the Jewish circles, and perhaps some of the people of the Hebrew church had some connection with this community. Enoch, in Genesis here, is part of a, is, is seventh in a generation from Seth. So Adam, after Abel died, Adam and Eve had Seth. And what you have is Adam is first, then you have Seth, then Enosh, then Canaan, then Mahalalel, then Jared, then Enoch. He's the seventh. And after Enoch, then you have something said about him. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God when he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 day years. Enoch walked with God. Again, it says he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So it says something about Enoch after that, after it mentions him. Now, what's interesting is there is kind of a... a, a there's another generation that comes out of Cain. And the seventh of that generation also has a paragraph written about him. His name is Lamech. So we have Adam, Cain, Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methusael, and Lamech. So Lamech is the seventh. 
And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zelah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What does that mean? That is the generation of the bloodthirsty men. That is the bloodthirsty generation that was opposing everything that God was about, that was opposing the righteousness. Once again, the people of the Hebrews were dealing with a bloodthirsty generation themselves, and he's showing that Enoch was dealing with a bloodthirsty generation. And what did he do? He walked with God. He sought God. He sought after him. And verse 6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Not without works, not without bringing the right offering, because as we see, none of that works, none of that pleases God, because it is not brought out of faith. The one who walks with God, the one who is pleasing to God, is the one who believes in God, the one who trusts in God. He says back in 1038, he says, if, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Uh, meaning that if he draws away, see the author's calling everyone to draw near to God. But the ones who draw away from God, the ones who pull away from God, there's no pleasure in the one who pulls away from God. Faith is the path. It's the means through which we hold to the promises of God. It's what strengthens our grip and it's what fuels our walk. It's faith that pleases God, not works. Look, look what, uh, what, what James says. Because sometimes you might look at the book of James and think, wait a minute, is he saying that, that, that works is really what pleases God? He's not. He's saying, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The faith must precede the works. The works come out of the faith. Everything we do, everything that Abel was doing, the offering that he was bringing to the Lord was brought to the Lord because of his faith in the Lord, because of his trust that he created all things and that he is going to continue to provide and that he is the God of the universe. And the same with Enoch. In the midst of a bloodthirsty generation, Enoch was, was drawing near to God because he knew that God was the creator of all things, that God was the one who would sustain him, that God was his life and sustain her. And God took him so he didn't have to see death. One of the only ones, along with Elijah. True faith, what the author is saying here, true faith works through us. For whoever would draw near to God, he puts this in here as well. So he says this, and without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must do two things, believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now you think, is that all you got to do is just believe he exists? Well, that's pretty easy. I believe in God. Is that enough? This can sound uh, uh, very generic. But the idea here is he's not, he's not making a case. The writer here is not saying everything about God and everything that we must believe about God. He's writing to people who already know God, who already know who Yahweh is. 
And in fact, another way this could be said is believe that God is. The Greek word, Amy, kind of is I am. Ego Amy is I am, but that God is. So when God said to, to, to Moses back in Exodus, when, at, when Moses said, who shall I say you are? He says, I am who I am. And so the first thing, if we are to draw near to God, we must believe that he is who he says he is. And that he rewards those who seek him. Now what that's referring to is that those who seek God are rewarded with the promises of God. Those who seek after God. Enoch was was walking with God knowing that he would inherit the promises of God. And the ones who draw near to God are going to benefit by the promise. Because when you're trusting in those promises, you're trusting that you're going to receive those promises, he will deliver. God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, even when we are faltering, when we're on the track, down, just wobbling on the track, trying to get to the finish line, God is faithful. Always faithful. Jeremiah 29, 13, popular verse says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me, how? With all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart, when your life is poured into seeking God, he will give himself to you. Next we see a perseverance of faith in Noah. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, by the way, is the first one in this group to have to take God at his word. To have to start actually building something for something he doesn't even see yet. He's got to believe in what he has not seen. He's got to believe this warning that God gave him, that it's going to rain, that I'm going to flood the earth and destroy everybody else, and you, in the meantime, build an ark when there was no sign of rain. And Noah did. Because of his faith, Noah continued to persevere amidst a culture that rejected God. The whole culture there, the whole, all of humanity was rejecting God. To the point where he was going to destroy the earth. And here is Noah in the midst of this bloodthirsty generation. Holding firm. Standing firm. Trusting in the God who created him. The God who he believed was going to bring the floods on the earth. And the God who he believed was going to save him. And the God who he also believed reckoned him or considered him righteous. Why? Because he was building such a good ark? Because he was such a good carpenter? No, because of his faith. Because Noah believed God. In the midst of all the trouble and all the turmoil, he trusted God. And he trusted that God would give him his promises. So how does this provide endurance for the readers for us? Or for us? How does... 
the work of Abel, the lives of Abel, Enoch, and Noah provide endurance to the readers of the Hebrew letter, including us. Well, for one, to remind us and demonstrate how faith caused those saints before us to endure so much hardship. Because of their faith and their trust in God. So the, so the lesson here for us, the key, is to increase our faith. <laughs> is to pray that the Lord would increase our faith. And that's what he's been calling out for the entire letter. This whole letter is about believing. It's not been about doing. In fact, it's been about doing less. It's been about resting. Chapter 3 and 4, talking about resting. Resting in the promises. Resting in the offering that was given. Having that Sabbath rest. No longer having to, to go through the rituals of all of these sacrifices and having different high priests year after year and having to go to the temple. But everything is done now by faith in the one who came for us. Because without faith, remember, if you're trying to please God today by your, by your performance, if you're trying to please God by how much you do of this or that, by how much you give, by how much you, you work, if you think that's pleasing God more, Scripture says no. God's Word says no. That may be very challenging for some of us. It may be very liberating for some of us. God is calling us to draw near to him because how do we build our faith? How do we see our faith increase? Exactly what the writer says, to draw near to God. James says, you draw near to God, he draws near to you. To draw near to God with full confidence. And how do we do that? Well, by the way, after this, after this series is over in a few months, we're going to have a sermon series on drawing near to God. Praying that God will draw our hearts closer to him and revive our hearts in a way that we've never been revived before. And we would seek him. So how do we draw near? By spending time with him, seeking him in his word. It was, it was, it's God's word that, that, was coming, that was spoken by the, the, by the son. In the very beginning, God spoke through his son. The whole beginning of the book of Hebrews is about the word of God that was given to us, the word of God that we are to believe, the word of God that gives us confidence in who he is and builds our faith. It's able to build us up, as Paul told the Ephesian elders, by spending time with him, seeking him in his word, also by seeking him in times of prayer, by taking time to pray. And let me just say, Wednesday night, please be here. I'd like to ask all the prayer groups to, to not meet, and let's meet as a congregation. We're going to do this once quarterly, but let's meet together and have a prayer meeting together here at 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening. Seeking him in worship and in the sacraments as we are now, and seeking him in fellowship with one another. 
Brothers and sisters, we are a weary church. We've been through a lot. It's been a hard few years. Many of us are going through a lot. May we take this time, may we take the next few months to draw near to the Lord, ask him to increase our faith, pray for one another, and pray that he would bring us to a place where we would understand the power of the faith that he has given us and that we would rest in the faith that he has given us and the work that was accomplished on the cross. And may we rejoice in that and spread that word to our community. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the endurance that you provide by your people, by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would revive our hearts, revive our faith, build us up in you, and do that by the power of your spirit and the power of your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.